The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Welcome to Voices of Experience on Kixie AM 880, simulcast on KKNW 1150 AM. My name is Paul Casey, Eric Rima. Darn it, he's in Hawaii having a good time, so he's not with us today. And so i uh, going to have another second Eric be here, Eric Ryder. And as he is going to chime in throughout the show and run the show and do all the magic to make this all good coming to you. And I say this pretty much every week, but uh, we have a really nice mix today of guests and topics that we're going to talk about. We're going to start with a Dean Baki, and he's a retired executive director, excuse me, executive editor of the New York Times. And he is the lifetime recipient of the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award from Washington State University. Some Recipients that have received that award in the past were saying about or talking about Christine, Christina Amapour, Ted Koppel, Dan Rather, Lester Holt, Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, just to name a few. So that's an all-star list of people. And this is the 47th symposium. And again, Dean Baquet is the recipient for this year. And we also have a Sarah Westner Flynn. And uh, she's going to talk about, well, her book is Not So Common Sense. And it's about teaching children about finances early on. And uh, I think that's a really good thing. And I share with her, and you'll hear it later in the interview, my story. I wasn't a child. I was actually, I was in college when I learned something about finances that really I should have known about that long before. So anyhow, uh, we'll get into that a little bit, but I think it's just a really good uh, topic. And I've wondered about that, that sometimes I don't think we teach that early enough. Voices in history today, the first draft in NFL, NFL history took place on February 8th, 1936, 87 years ago. Today, the individual chosen was from a university football program that no longer exists. He was also the Heisman Trophy winner that same year. Timeless Classics. This will be an instrumental from 1963. It wasn't intended to be a Christmas song, but that is what it has become over the years. So you probably hear it now more during Christmas time than any other time in the year. Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster are back with Peculiar Podcast. Two subjects we talk about today are actually they talk about the type of voice that you want to hear when you're in a plane about to take off, maybe there's turbulent weather when the pilot comes on to tell you what's coming in the flight to it and what to expect. What type of voice do you want to hear? I've always thought about that subconsciously, but of course, they bring it up consciously for all of us to hear. And did you know or do you know what upswings are? 
I had no idea what they were. I kind of do, but I didn't know there was a term for it. And of course, they will solve that mystery for us today. What's Voices of Experience all about? We talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, and with an emphasis on entrepreneurism. And uh, if there's anything you would like to hear about, you can call the Voices of Experience Message Center at 425-653-1166. Let us know what you would like to hear, what topics you'd like to us to delve into further. We had a call a few weeks ago from someone who said they would like us to talk about job opportunities for older adults, which we are pursuing now. So again, what do you hear that you like? And what would you like to hear? We are absolutely open ears to that. That number again is 425-653-1166. Okay, let's get to the 2023 Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, Dean Paquet, coming up in just a moment. Dean Baquet, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and retired executive editor of the New York Times. He also held that position with the LA Times and was a chief investigative reporter for the Chicago News Tribune, is my guest. Now, Dean Baquet is the recipient of the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award in Journalism. He will be coming to the campus of Washington State University to receive this award on April 4, 2023. Now, Dean Baquet is the first African-American to serve as the executive editor of the New York Times. And under his tenure, the New York Times won 18 Pulitzer Prizes and greatly increased subscriptions. Many have said that Dean Baquet has served as a champion of truth throughout his career. He has won not only numerous awards for reporting, but as editor who created his own legacy while promoting and defending the careers of others. I started out this interview like I do many others, and that is, how did you get into the field that you decided to take in life? And in this case, did he find journalism or did journalism find him? When did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? You know, it's interesting. I have all of these friends who knew their whole lives that they wanted to be journalists. I did not. I was the editor of my high school paper, but I mainly did that because they told me I needed extracurricular activities. I, I didn't know I wanted to be a journalist until I was, I guess, a sophomore or junior at Columbia, undergrad, homesick for New Orleans, was looking for an excuse to go home, got an internship at the New Orleans afternoon paper. It was easy to get internships in those days. And almost from the moment I walked into the newsroom, fell in love with it. Um, and I, I think that, so I was 19. I don't think I knew I wanted to be a journalist until then. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but walking into that newsroom and just feeling like it's the excitement, the energy, seeing the city in new ways, that was, that's what convinced me. Now, at 31, you were actually in Chicago working for the Tribune, and uh, okay. you won a Pulitzer Prize there in an investigation mm -hmm. to influence peddling the Chicago City Council or something along those lines. That must have been a real shot mm -hmm. in the arm for you and getting that so young. It was, it was, um, I, it, you almost can't 
explain at least in that era what what it means to win a Pulitzer. It was like it was like the profession telling you that you'd made it. But it was also a story that I was really proud of. It was a story that meant a lot to me. It was a story that it was the first really long, long-term story I'd worked on. I worked on it for months. Chicago was the, was the greatest place to be a local reporter, a local investigative reporter. It was competitive. People read the paper. People cared about the news. The upside of Chicago being dominated by this political machine is that people knew their local politicians. But it was exhilarating people read the newspaper. Do you think that has been in a tremendous decline like we hear, or is that exaggerated? No, I think it's been in tremendous decline. I don't think people read the newspapers for the most part the way they used to. I'm not, I don't know whether people read news in other forms. I mean, this was the last, the time of the Chicago Tribune was the last era where newspapers were dominant. The internet not was not in existence the way it is today. So if you wanted your news, you have to read a printed newspaper. I do think that, that people get their news in interesting and different ways. I'm not, I'm not sure the, it's the end of people reading the news, but it's certainly, I don't think people will ever read newspapers the way they did in that era. I read in your background, you didn't like being editor and you were an editor, the you know L.A. Times in some capacity, managing editor in New York mm-hmm. Times, of course. But you wanted to be an investigative reporter. How did you balance that? You know, I came to like being an editor after a while, but I didn't want to be an editor. I had my arm twisted to become an editor. I never let go of being a reporter. I never let go of the feeling that that reporting and finding things out is the height of the profession. I approach stories as an editor with that same curiosity of a reporter. I try to never let that go. If you ask me what I fear most about the future of the profession, it's that it's the decline of the importance of reporting. You were the first investigative reporter to run a major news organization, that you came from that area to become an editor, and that's obviously served you quite well, too. Yeah, it was, it was, it, it really shaped how I thought about building a, a, a newsroom. I tried to make both news organizations as much as possible investigative. I tried to make, you know, make sure we had a lot of investigative reporters, but I also just tried to make sure it was part of the DNA of the news organization. And I, and I think that, frankly, the Times has done tremendous investigative reporting, and still does. And, um, you know, I'm proud to have had a role in building that. You were very early on being a black man, getting into the field as much as you did as an investigative journalist. There just weren't that many. And then you no, lasted weren't. in this profession for so long. What changes did you see along those lines? A lot. I remember when I first started going to investigative reporter conventions, there were very, very few black reporters or very few Latino reporters. There are more now, but still not enough. The biggest changes I saw in the profession, and some of it is going on right now, newsrooms are more diverse than they were. They're still not diverse enough. And you can see it in, you know, the kinds of stories that newspapers are starting to think about more. And that's, there's a lot more to do, but I think that's the biggest change in newsrooms. When I became managing editor of the LA Times, I think there was one other managed, black managing editor. There are many more now. Speaking of the uh, LA Times, you know, where you did serve as managing editor, and, and then later executive editor, 
You had a clash with the paper's owners, and you were fired over that. And what happened? Yeah. I thought, and still think, that the people who ran, who who controlled the paper then, I thought they were short-sighted. I thought that they, in fact, they believed that the L.A. Times could maintain its profitability by cutting. And I just didn't think that was the case. And I thought it would get to the point, and I thought it was getting to the point, where the cutting was, was hurting the paper, was going to chase readers away, and was going to make it really harder to have a digital future. And I did a cutting, and it got to the point where I thought any more cutting would kill the thing. And I told them that. And I said it publicly. And so they fired me. And I think that history has proven me right. Ultimately, those guys lost control of the company. And I think they were short-sighted. And I think that the New York Times, by contrast, because of the Salzberger family, has, has invested. I mean, the newsroom is bigger now than it was 10 years ago. And that's, and that's the difference between you know, leaders who look toward the future and leaders who are just trying to deal with the current bottom line. What are you most proud of in your career or other things that you accomplished as you were going through your um, life in journalism? I think what I'm most proud of is that I was seen in the newsrooms I ran as a humane leader. I was seen as a leader who cared about his people. Given the tumultuous period I ran newsrooms in, I think that, that makes me feel the best. Local papers, we were back to, or I just want to take us back there for a moment. Local newspapers, I think I've read thousands are going away. Like, there is a bill in Congress to try to help stop this and get the social media companies to pay for content that the local newspapers provide. What do you think about that? You know, I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little anxious about all of the, the proposals I've heard to, um, for governments to bail out local newspapers. I'm, I'm, I'm a little anxious, and I haven't studied the details about the idea of, the social, of social media bailing out. I think it's a complicated issue. Who do you bail out? What about all of the new startups? And I'm, and I'm a little wary of the idea of, of just social media throwing money into the, into the pot without any discussion or thought about the meaning of it. Frankly, it always makes me a little bit nervous, to be honest, when government gets involved in trying to save journalism. It makes me nervous. There are real glimmers of hope. I mean, there are some terrific not-for-profit news organizations cropping up all over the country. You returned to New York, to the New York Times in 2007, as a Washington bureau chief, and then as mm -hmm. a managing editor, and then executive editor of the New York Times in 2014. And during mm -hmm. your tenure there, it won numerous Pulitzer Prizes again, and the newsroom grew, and... Um, by a tremendous amount. I was surprised you had 1,300 newsroom staff in 2014, and there are 2,000 now. That's, that's remarkable. Right. No, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a testament to two things. First, it's a testament to the family, the Oxel brother family, because they have been willing to forego huge wealth and the kind of cuts it would take. And they've really they've protected the paper. And then I will say it's also a testament a business side that believed that investing in journalism was the right thing to do and also good for business. I love the diversity of your columnists in the New York Times, you know, under your tenure mm -hmm. and continued. It seems like you're even getting more diverse opinions in, younger 
and uh, different backgrounds and things. But uh, what I always feel the New York Times gets hit with sometimes, it's a, quote, liberal, end of quote, newspaper. And I don't feel that way. I feel that, yes, you give certainly opinions on things, but you balance it out pretty well. I mean, I felt that that's where I go to get my conservative commentary, like a David Brooks, maybe, or, you know, other columnists that uh, write. And I think, I mean, that's been my impression of when people mm-hmm. will say it's a liberal, well, it's a New York Times, a liberal newspaper. Do you, I'm sure you got that a lot, too. I did. I should point out, by the way, that as the executive editor, I ran everything but the editorial pages. So David Brooks and the, and, and the others didn't work um, for me. But I agree with your observation, nonetheless. And I think the, you know, I think it's a, I think the opinion, my colleagues and opinion have worked really hard. They have thoughtful voices from different points of view. I mean, where are you going to find Paul Krugman, Charles Blow, and David Brooks, and Brett Stevens? And I I think that's, I I think if you're really going to understand America at this moment, you do need to read some people you disagree with. There was some criticism in 2016 that maybe the New York Times went too far in Hillary Clinton's emails and exposing that and us mm-hmm. underestimating the threat of Donald Trump. What is your response to that? I do think we at the New York Times, me, since I was running the New York Times, did not understand um, how serious a candidate Donald Trump was. It's, I think people who say we didn't investigate him thoroughly are, are just have not looked at the record. We did investigate him thoroughly. We were the first to write about his treatment of women. We were the first to write anything about his taxes. I thought, certainly. Um, I wasn't in touch with the country and how much, how much the country was divided and how much support he had in the country. That surprised me. And if I had to do it over again, I obviously would have tried to understand that better and explain it. As far as the, the criticism of our Hillary Clinton coverage, look, in retrospect, would we have treated it the way we treated it? Probably not. But the leading candidate, the candidate for the Democratic nomination, was under investigation by the federal government. I think to downplay that would have been irresponsible. So we covered it, and we covered it aggressively. And we also covered Trump and his and the questions about him aggressively. I don't buy that we that our job was to not cover Hillary Clinton's being under investigation by the federal government. I don't know how one could say you can't cover that aggressively. I don't buy that. Fair enough. One of the cornerstones that you had in expanding the readership under your direction, and you did some things that uh, were considered different than the news focus of the New York Times. You like cooking, games, and uh, mm-hmm. coverage of the arts, and I think it was under you that Wordle came into existence, too, and mm-hmm. trying to diversify yeah. and get me people more interested in the newspaper, and then they would essentially have the news as well. Uh, that seemed to go quite well. Yeah, you know, in a way, in a way, that was that was a repeat of what newspapers always did, and I don't think people fully understood that. The last time newspapers were in crisis, forty, fifty years ago, were just like one section, two sections, and they just covered business, nothing else. And then when readers started, you know, going to the suburbs, you know, the New York Times and other papers created food section, home sections, expanded their magazines. In a weird way, this was the digital version of that, right? We always had cooking coverage. We had Craig Claiborne and Pierre Frame. 
we always had games. <laughs> we had the crossword puzzle. And now, you know, Wordle is the new crossword puzzle, but we also still have the crossword puzzle. I think that the decision, and in, in, in partnership with the business side, the decision to expand podcasting, which for us was a big expansion too, I think the decision to do that, essentially we were repeating what our forefathers did the last time newspapers were in crisis, which is it's okay to offer people a range of stuff. And that's what we did. And I think it worked. It worked really well. It brought new readers in. It brought different kinds of readers in. In my understanding, the New York Times is really flush with money now. They're doing very well, correct? Yeah. No, we are. We are doing very I mean, no traditional news company can say that we're back to the way things were in the glory days. And I think the New York Times is still going to have to keep growing. It's going to have to keep building its subscription base. You are the 47th recipient of the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award. Congratulations on Mm -hmm. that. One thing I want to ask you about, your opinion of Edward R. Murrow and his legacy. Mm -hmm. And I think this was someone who believed in the profession and took it very seriously, who was courageous at a time when a lot of journalists were not, who understood the power and and also the perils of the direction journalism was headed in, who understood and somehow balanced the role of journalists as aggressive advocate. That name to me is like one of the names that conjures up um, all of the great things about the profession that I chose. And I think his role, obviously his historic role dealt with in books and movies during the McCarthy era was just a powerful reminder of when when a journalist who has tremendous integrity steps into a fray and calls out a powerful person for doing something bad. He's one of the greats. He's one of the, the people that the profession is built on. So it means a lot to me to, to, to get this award. And this year's theme, Legacy of Truth, Communication mm-hmm. with Courage. And I think looking at that and talking to you and doing some background search on you, you certainly fill that bill. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. What are your future plans? So I'm running a program now that the New York Times set up um, to work with local freelancers and news organizations to do local investigative reporting. And essentially what happens is we've been getting applications from all over the country. We pick a handful of applicants. We will edit their stories. We'll publish them in the Times and publish them somewhere locally with the goal of, of helping local news organizations and local freelancers to do this kind of work that I love so much that I've essentially spent my career doing. And also um, to teach a generation of local investigative reporters. You know, I have people applying who were beat reporters who, in fact, I'm spending my time now here going through applicants who were beat reporters who have good ideas. And we get on the phone with them and we wrestle with their ideas. We visited some newsrooms around the country. I said it was in Jackson, Mississippi essentially to meet with the with the reporters and editors and help them craft ideas and also just have give them a chance to talk to people who have been in the profession a long time who care about it. Sounds to me, or I'm going to put words in your mouth, you're optimistic about the future. There's a lot of young journalists coming up, and they sound like, or my impression would be then, that you know things aren't as bleak maybe in this world as sometimes we think. Yeah, look, I think that... What I always tell when I say to um, 
young reporters are asking me if they should go into the profession. I say to them, yes, it's going to be hard. You're landing in a moment where the profession is under threat, under attack, but you get to reshape the profession. You get to, I mean, Mississippi Today, which is a, a local not-for-profit that's only been around for a few years, is run by a guy named Adam Ganeshow, who grew up in Mississippi, and is going to shape coverage of his community. Anything else before we go? No, just that I'm honored to um, receive the award, and it just means, it means a lot to me. Thank you. My thanks to Dean Bacay, former journalist and executive editor of The New York Times. Now, Dean Bacay will be receiving the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award on the campus of Washington State University on April 4, 2023. If you would like to find out more about Dean Bacay or the 47th Murrow Symposium, Google Murrow Symposium. That's M-U-R-R-O-W Symposium. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. All right, so we're back, coming back with our background music. So uh, anyhow, um, enjoyed that interview very much, uh, and I hope you did too with uh, Dean Bacay. So let's shift, Eric, into voices in history. How's that sound? It sounds good. I'm I'm always fascinated by the stuff you dig up for yeah. uh, voices. Yeah, little history. time, but yeah. I really enjoy it. Um, just doing that promo we just did again. It said LaGuardia Airport, right? In yeah, New York, right? Right. With Captain Sully did that spot. Interesting that my first voices in history today happens to come on February 7th, 1964, when Pan American Flight 101 from London, Heathrow Airport, touched down at New York, what was LaGuardia Airport two weeks before, but was renamed Kennedy Airport, on um, the arrival of a famous group, not at the time, but what has become an incredibly famous group, probably the most famous group in our lifetime, the Beatles. And it was their first visit to the United States, and they were greeted by over 3,000 screaming fans. They had just scored their first number one hit in the U.S. six days before, I Want to Hold Your Hand. The Beatles came to New York to appear on the Ed Sullivan Ed Sullivan, Sullivan Show. A really big seven, show. What's that? A really big shoe. Yeah, really big <laughs> shoe. And over 70 million viewers tuned in. And wow. what comes to mind there is that if you look at the demographics today and the tap scans and, and uh, TV ratings, 
if you have nine or 10 million viewers, you are gold. Yeah. I mean, you have a really nice size audience. I was going to say, I don't think that million the, people. Yeah. I don't think the Super Bowl even gets that much now. You're, you're probably right. That's right. That'd be interesting to know that. But a uh, little bit of um, history there. On, our, on February 8th, 1936, Jerry Berwanger was the first person picked number one in the NFL draft in history. And that was held at the Philadelphia Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Berwanger played for the University of Chicago as a halfback. And of course, that program doesn't exist anymore. And he was the first Heisman Trophy winner as well that year. And I just looked up while we were listening to the interview just a moment ago. I looked up and saw what, or asked the question, what was the University of Chicago's mascot? What were they called? They were called the University of Chicago Maroons. <laughs> what a maroon. that's the color. <laughs> you learn all sorts of things on this. That's true. And in fact, I, I looked up the Super Bowl ratings and apparently still pulling in like uh, close to 100 million people on the Super Bowl. So, now, is that worldwide? I, you know, it says uh, in the United States. Okay. So, well, yeah. So, fair enough. I, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> the Super Bowl you, uh, Eric, wrong. got a few Hard more eyes than the, the Beatles that first time around. But still, that's pretty amazing. 70 million people tuning in for that. I was talking to someone today, and I know a lot of people feel this way, and she's a woman, and I'm saying women don't love football because they do. But she says, and we hear this a lot, I watch it for the advertisements. <laughs> I mean, that is when some of the most creative and interesting uh, spots that people are talking about at the office the next day uh, exactly. air. So, yeah, that makes sense, too. On February 9, 1942, Daylight Savings Time was instituted. Congress pushed it ahead and called it standard time for the United States by one hour in each time zone. It was imposed during World War II, and it was referred to then as wartime. Now, I've heard so many reasons why we have the change in hours and all that, and every time it happens, people go, oh, why are we doing this? That's just like clockwork every year. But I've heard it's because of agriculture and so many reasons, but I never heard that it was instituted in World War II and because of the war. So that's another thing. For we'll sure. have to investigate further. And now there's a war on whether <laughs> we should go permanent daylight savings or whether we should go uh, permanent standard time. I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but uh, it is interesting that we're still debating it. Uh, right. You know, and all it's the like way we'll in 2023. <laughs> it for the rest of my life and yours, I'm sure. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, on February 10th, 1966, Ralph Nader, then a young lawyer, and an author of a groundbreaking book, Unsafe at Any Speed, it was written about the design dangers of cars, American automobiles specifically. He testified before Congress for the first time about unsafe practices of the auto industry. And it really resulted in a lot of changes and were benefits of Ralph Nader, in my mind, the safety features that him put on our cars that were amazing. We'd have to have a whole show to talk about what it was like driving a car, the safety of a car at that time versus today. Yeah. So all of this is courtesy of the um, History Channel. On this day in history, I say every week, if you enjoy these, just Google 
the History Channel, Day in History, and they have every single day of the year much more background information than I'm able to get to. On the more local level, this week the New York Times had an article about Boeing delivering the last ever 747 jumbo jet. I'm sure that uh, a lot of people saw that. Um, the first Boeing 747 rolled out in 1968 and was christened by flight attendants that were then called stewardesses from each of the airlines that had already placed orders. Six months later, the 747 flew for the first time from Painfield and Everett. All tests went smoothly. And on February 7, 1911, Seattle voters recalled Mayor Hiram Gill because of his permissiveness towards alcohol and prostitution. Three years later, he was voted back in for, in for two more terms. So they decided, well, maybe it's not so bad. They missed the party. <laughs> yeah, let's party. We missed it and we got to go. And I think gambling was involved with that too. All right. So anyhow, very interesting. So this is courtesy of History Link and their website is historylink.org. So there you have it for today. Voices in History will be back with Pat and Lisa Cashman in just a moment. Well, Pat and uh, Lisa Foster um, do this peculiar podcast, and that's the name of it. I'm just not saying that. And uh, I really enjoy listening to it. They've been doing it for a long time. And um, today, let's just get into it. I'm not even going to describe it. Let's just jump in and hear what they have to say about a pilot's voice and upswings. Take it away, Lisa and Pat. Wait, is that your dumb little echo microphone? Yes, toy? yes, yes, it is. Yeah, this is it. Okay. So, so I love this gadget. I know, but I'm I'm with Patty, your wife, on this. That yeah. stop playing with that thing. I know it's it's childlike, but, but it it works. It it's got. That was you can use both this uh, part, and then if you turn this switch here, you can create an echo. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> Hey, baby. But it's a crummy echo. You know, it's like the kind you used to hear on the 45 records back in the 60s. Yes. Hey, baby. Hello, baby. Yeah, this is the Big Bopper speaking. <laughs> oh, you sweet thing. Do I want? Will I want? Chantilly lace and a pretty face. And yeah, it's just like that kind of not yes. very good echo. Yeah. No, the so. other one's good, though. The other side's good. Or the other <laughs> switch off is yeah. good. So we're on this plane, and the, and, and the pilot comes on. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for flying with Delta tonight. We are uh, going to go to a altitude of 30,000 feet, we will experience some turbulence. You know, he's like that. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, man, that's exactly the voice you want to hear that's flying your plane. <laughs> you don't want to hear, hi, everybody. How's it going? It's your pilot. Uh, it's kind of it's stormy out there right now. I, 
I don't know. Now we're not going to crash or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but boy, yeah. I don't know. If, you know, if they if I put it up to a vote, I wouldn't fly tonight. I wouldn't, but you know, a job's a job, and I'll do my best. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're right. You, you want a guy to sound like, oh man, he's he's yeah. a commanding presence. Yeah, I don't want to hear that other guy. Yeah, there's ever. nothing he can't handle, and anything you throw at him, locusts, yes. clouds, thunder, he's got the we plane. Got it. It's handled. We got that. Yes. Yeah. I know I'm jumping all over the place like a spastic grasshopper here, but. <laughs> This is an ongoing annoyance of mine, and I and I know I'm a voice in the wilderness on this. Okay, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, and that is my uh, quixotic effort to get back to talking like regular people again. What on earth do you mean? I'm talking about the this everything talk ends in a question mark nowadays. You hear it everywhere in everyday conversation. And I used to thought, what if Lincoln delivered his his uh, his Gettysburg address that way? Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers set forth on this continent, a new nation. Every, always going up like that. Yeah. This to me, this commercial is so annoying to me. It, it has this pattern, and you'll hear it here, mm-hmm. where every every. Clause is ends in a question mark until the very end of the sentence, and then it goes down. So it's like to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You let me play the commercial. This woman is one of those people I think on HGTV or something like that. So she has some kind of credibility, I guess, in in the home fix up world. But listen to this commercial and listen to. Uh, it's for a jacuzzi bath remodel oh, thing. God. Check it out. Hi, I'm Christina. You may know me from Flipping Houses. Listen, I've designed hundreds of new spaces and I've seen it all. Crumbling grout, impossible stains, clunky step-over tubs. Say goodbye to that ugly headache and hello to a jacuzzi bath remodel. Stop! Everyone knows the jacuzzi brand. They're the most trusted name in water for over 60 years. Uh-huh. But did you know they can install a gorgeous bath or shower that feels incredible in as little as one day oh, and at a on. price that will fit any budget? Holy. Stepping into your new shower has never been easier. Stop. Jacuzzi bath remodel combines safety and style so you don't have to compromise. Because uh. wherever you're at in life, you deserve to start and end oh. your day in a spectacular space designed just for you. Please. With no stress and no mess. Each piece is specially engineered and perfectly designed to work together for a stunning shower system that just rinses clean. Oh my With Lord. one call, you can effortlessly transform that old, ugly eyesore You're into a beautiful me. bath or shower that you'll love for years to come uh, with a jacuzzi bath remodel. That's it. That drives me nuts. I know. Now... Why does a director not say, "Hey, you know what, honey? Let's uh, let, let's let's try try mm-hmm. let's try to just say it like a regular person." You don't do you talk like that? Well, maybe she does, but I mean that it's just terrible. I know this you, is you, you you're not selling down. the product. You need to calm down because you you've bitched about this before. It's just COVID. It's just COVID. Thing. <laughs> you are super angry. You've you've bitched about this before, and and I reminded you. In the voiceover industry, we would call that an upswing. So upswings yeah, yeah, is a pattern is. of 
that that very thing. I find uh, women do it more often than men. Do you find that? Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> you were supposed to make that a question. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> All right, there we go. <laughs> the installment from <laughs> Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster, Peculiar Podcast. And that is named appropriately, but... Those are two things that I have the same questions on. I mean, the upswing, I didn't know what that was. And of course, we've all thought in a plane, when you're taking off, you want a pilot that sounds really strong in what they're doing. So thank you both again and uh, allowing me to play some of uh, parts of your podcast again. And again, you can listen to all of them. They're just all very well done. Just Google Peculiar Podcast. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. All right, so we're back, and I have another interview I had earlier this week, and the uh, title of the uh, interview, or actually her book, is Not So Common Sense, and that is spelled C-E-N-T-S, and the author is from National Geographic, and her name is Sarah Wensner Flynn. How did you get interested in financing number one? Did this happen when you were a kid or did this evolve later? What do you think you can impart on younger people in terms of managing finances or even getting interested in it? My, yes, I mean, like any kid, I was interested in money from as long as I can remember. I had a piggy bank and I was very concerned about filling up that piggy bank and then emptying it rather quickly on whatever shiny objects I wanted to buy. Um, that evolved more into hard work and working as soon as I could get a job and been working since I was about 15 years old. And what I think the takeaway that I would love readers to have is that spending and saving can really be your superpower. It's all about locking in that knowledge now. So when kids start to earn, they'll be ready to make wise decisions that can really benefit them in the long run. It's interesting that we learn a lot from our parents and maybe society in general, but money as a child growing up is not one of them. And I just want to admit some ignorance that I had growing up about money. And I'm in college, got my first checking account. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. I remember the balance was down. I looked at the statement, it was down like $400. And I went, my gosh, I thought I spent a lot more money than that. And so I wrote a bunch of checks based on that. <laughs> and then they were bouncing oh. everywhere. And I go, oh, 
Gee, mm-hmm. what happened there? You know, and I'm in I'm in college. I hate to admit it, but that's how again oh, yeah. ignorant I mm-hmm. was about money. So I, I always wondered yes. about that. Why I get taught all these really good things growing up from my parents and other people around, but with money, it just wasn't really a priority. I think that money was always a little bit. Some in some cultures, it still is, but it's taboo. It's taboo to talk about how much you made or how much your parents made. Um, and now, you know, it's becoming increasingly more of a just mainstream topic of conversation. When I first started writing, um, working as a writer, for example, I didn't know what the salaries were of my peers because it was all so hush-hush. And now, you know, there's websites that publish salaries across the board. Um, I was in the same boat as you in college. In fact, I just had a conversation with one of my best friends who talked about going to Target to buy a pair of boots, writing a check, and that check bounced. And that followed her for several months up to a year of kind of writing that and having to explain to her parents why she bounced the check. And, you know, I think that we in, you know, the generation before this generation of readers, we weren't taught all the basics and maybe our parents um, didn't think to do that. But now it's like, okay, the time has come. We got to teach our kids uh, from the very beginning that, you know, how important money is and how important it is to arm yourselves with the knowledge so that when it comes time for you to go to college and to go buy whatever item you want, you're going to know, okay, I have enough money to do that, or I don't have enough money. And if I don't have enough money, how can I then earn the money to make that happen? When you're early and and young, early in life, can something like a lemonade stand, can that start you on the road to financial independence? Oh, sure. I mean, it's definitely a great first step. It's a simple way that kids can get a taste to so to speak, of earning income at a young age in a safe and really a wholesome way. And in the book, I also outline other first jobs that will allow kids to do the same without having to even leave their neighborhood. So it's all about providing that spark of interest in a kid's mind and then, again, empowering them with the tools they need to make it happen and just really igniting that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, now I've seen you know, so many entrepreneurs who are like, you know, used to go on Shark Tank and you see it now and kids are much more aware that they could have an idea that could make them rich if they wanted to go that route. Um, and it's, you know, it's so again, becoming more mainstream. So we wanted to really introduce that idea um, in the book for, for kids at this age and encourage them that maybe one day they too could come up with a great idea and um, have a business out of it. Something about digital currency mm-hmm. with with crypto kind of going, I don't say uh, out of business per se, but having their uh, troubles, mm-hmm. of course, I kind of looked at that going, see, because I'm not you know, really um, very knowledgeable about that at all. And I just don't really mm-hmm. care. It scares me. So it's like, OK, what's this mm-hmm. going? So they had the mm-hmm. meltdown. Right. And and I'm thinking it's going away. Mm-hmm. But then. You're suggesting that it's important that kids learn about traditional money and that, I guess, by the question asking it, is that digital money, whether our currency, it's here to stay, whether I like it or not, or I don't understand it. It's going to go on. Is that correct? Well, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, you say blockchain and Bitcoin 10, 15 years ago, and probably nobody knew what you were talking about. So there might be something in the future that we're not aware of that's going to happen and that we're all going to have to then wrap our heads around. So in this book, I wanted to approach the future of money with broad strokes. And yes, we do touch on cryptocurrency in in the most basic way because we don't want to hype it up or 
downplay it was just like this is in your world and you hear your parents talking about it so here it, it is an explanation of what it is but we also wanted to showcase and explain technology that's a lot more mainstream at least for kids like wearable wallets and voice-based purchasing and things like just walk out stores that they have now in my area in New York City where you go and you pick up the thing and you walk out and somehow you get charged for it. Um, so that's what we're seeing in the world today. So I had a lot of fun researching and dreaming about what life will look like um, in the future uh, with, with these kids being adults and even in the far off future, like, you know, if we send hum humans to Mars, are they going to be able to buy things in Mars and, you know, we want to just challenge our readers to dream up of their own ideas and maybe they're going to be the ones who are coming up with the technology. So that's why it was, you know, important to include things like cryptocurrency in the book, but not necessarily um, make a big, bold statement about it. I was at a presentation. The person who was making the presentation essentially said, the numbers are probably wrong here, but I think w the spirit of it is correct. And that is, if you started saving and put putting like $10, $15, maybe it was $20 a month in the bank or into the market. I don't know whether it was a stock market or what. Like you're 10 years old and you do that. By the time you're 60, you're going to be have millions of dollars. It's going to, going to turn into that. I've never mm -hmm. forgotten mm -hmm. that. Is, is that anywhere remotely true? I think that you know, the compounded interest is something that you can, you can figure out on your own. And as far as making it relatable to kids, we do have something like that in the book where it's like you can put this amount of money away every day and sometimes it's just five cents, sometimes it's 10 cents. And then at the end of the year, you might not have, you know, thousands, but you could have um, five, fifty, five. $50, $100, $500, um, you know, that's what our, it, our money savings challenge is. And for a kid, $50 is a lot of money. And you're only putting away, let's say, a dollar. Um, and, you know, not every kid's going to have a dollar to put away every day. So we have passes. So there's times where, like, you know, it's a bad week and you spent your money on bubble gum in the store and you don't have that. So it's just like we want, I want kids to experiment with that idea. Um, you know, that's something I think about often too. Like, oh, if I was only just putting, you know, a few cents away a day, now I'd be a millionaire. I don't, I've never met anyone who's actually done that, but I do feel like a goal like $50 at the end of the year would be really cool for a kid to achieve. Yeah, and that's true. And just getting in the habit of doing like anything, like working out or running or whatever you do, if you just get into the rhythm of it, you know, it, then it becomes a habit, mm -hmm. and a good habit. So, um, right, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. What type of savings accounts are there available to kids now? You know, there's regular savings accounts that parents, kids obviously can't go into a bank and just say, I want to open a savings account. Some of the kids who are reading this book are very young, but, you know, they could start with the very basic, which is just a piggy bank. Um, that's the easiest option. Or they could have their parents and guardians open a bank account invest in money in various ways and this is kind of again broad strokes but there's a stock market a mutual fund a money market account um, collectibles so you can you know put your money in things like baseball cards and I wanted to explain these complex methods in terms that kids would understand again they hear their parents talking about things like that um, I offer pros and cons for each different kinds of ways to invest and um, maybe even to earn interest like what is that so when the time comes, they're in the position that when it's happening, they'll be armed with the knowledge to make the decision to invest in the right way for them. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank uh, Eric Ryder. You did a wonderful job pitch hitting for Eric uh, Crema, who's uh, on the beach in Hawaii somewhere right now, I'm pretty sure, and running the boards. Any comments about what you heard today? You can call the Voices of Experience hotline 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. What would you like to hear more of? What suggestions do you have? Now, Voices of Experience airs on Kixie Wednesdays at 3 p.m. You probably know that if you're listening now. And a simulcast with Hubbard sister station, KKNW 1150. And Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Next week, Dean Regas. He's going to talk about 1,000 facts about space. I've done the interview. It's really fascinating. Quote of the week. Everyone has a story. If you just shut up and listen, former New York Times executive editor and today's guest, Dean Paquet. This week's timeless classic is largely instrumental, primarily piano with strings and are vocalized by a chorus of female and male singers. It was never intended to be a Christmas song, but that's probably when you'll hear it today. From 1963, Bill Purcell's version of our winter love.